0: Well, if you would, open up your Bibles. We're in Philippians, New Testament, towards the back of your Bibles, page uh, 980. We're looking at chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. It's also printed in your um, bulletin as well. Now, I think today's passage will challenge us all. Paul provides an example of how we're to proclaim Christ in all circumstances, even when we're undergoing suffering or trials. I don't know about you. But I need to grow in this area. Thankfully, our sermon series is titled Growing with Joy. Let's begin by reading Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will. If we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for the gift of Scripture. We thank you for the life of Paul and how he points us to how we may, too, live our lives in Christ. It seems overwhelming at times. Um, It seems as if despair is our only option, and yet there is joy um, in the gospel. Allow us to recognize that and press that into our hearts this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, it's true, right? We all like exemptions. (laughs) Every uh, spring, uh, I hold myself upstairs at my desk and working on my taxes, and every year I go, wow, look at those exemptions. Each kid, $4,000. I've got three kids. Then invariably, my wife hears me yelling from upstairs, hey, honey, how about another exemption? (laughs) We like our exemptions. If you have, don't look at me that way. <laughs> One of my kids, giving me, the, giving me the eye. All right, I love it. Um, if you have a cold or a flu, what are some of the exemptions that you claim? Do you claim the not getting out of bed exemption? The not going to school or work exemption? Do you take the not having to pick up that pile of dirty Kleenex exemption? When you have a hard day at school or work or in the home, what are some of the exemptions you claim? The not having to cook dinner exemption. Perhaps you take the grumpy exemption. (laughs) What about when someone cuts you off in traffic? (laughs) Well, maybe we ought not go there. On a more serious note, what about when you are suffering or enduring some sort of trial in your life, going through a difficulty in marriage, or struggling in work, or caring for an ailing parent. Is our tendency, is it not our tendency to feel exempt from having to expend any more energy anywhere else, to turn inward and focus on getting out of our difficult circumstance? And certainly do we not Do we not feel exempt from proclaiming Christ and from focusing on others and their need for Christ? Isn't it true often the last thing on our minds when we're suffering is to actively use our difficult circumstances as a springboard to point others to Christ? But that's exactly what the gospel allows us to do. Remember, this sermon is titled, Growing with Joy, As Christians, we are to mature, to grow, and not begrudgingly, but with great joy. And and a very important area for us all to grow in is how we see our circumstances as opportunities for others to hear about Christ. So hardship does not exempt us from proclaiming Christ. In fact, it may actually be the platform that God intends in our lives from which we will have success in advancing the gospel. In other words, God purposely allows hardships into our lives, not so that we can seek immediate escape, but so that we may have a platform from which to point others to Christ. And the sooner we embrace this, the sooner we may rejoice in this great work that God does through us. You know, in our passage this morning, we need to realize that that Paul isn't just having a bad day in the office. Three times Paul refers to his imprisonment. The Greek word is desmos. Uh, It can also be translated literally with, with chains or bonds or fetters. Desmos are the actual means by which someone is physically restrained. Today we would Call them handcuffs or zip ties. Paul is literally in chains. He is imprisoned, most likely in Rome, in Caesar's court, awaiting a trial. We know he spent up to two years there waiting for trial. Now, how does Paul respond? The human tendency, our human tendency, is to seek exemptions during hardship, Paul shows us the way the gospel. Paul shows us that there's no greater good that we can live for other than the advancement of the gospel. And therefore, no matter our circumstances, we are to joyfully proclaim him, proclaim Christ. Now, how do we get there? How do we get from being timid, uh, comfort seekers, to being people who are confident and joyful witnesses to Christ in all circumstances? Well, this passage begins with the words, I want you to know, brethren. Paul wants us to know from the example of his life how this has worked into the life of each and every believer. I think as we investigate his words, we're going to be challenged and encouraged to mature in the gospel. We're going to divide our time in two simple areas. First, we're going to look at the priority of Christ and his gospel over our circumstances. Then we're going to look at the priority of Christ and his gospel over our reputations. First, the priority of Christ and his gospel over our circumstances. What are Paul's circumstances? Paul was in chains. Picture this. Paul, who for 20 years had traveled freely as the Holy Spirit has led him from city to city and town to town. Paul, who traveled all throughout the Mediterranean, planting one church after another, leading dozens and hundreds and thousands of people to faith in Christ. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, is rotting away in prison and may soon lose his life. No doubt word has gotten out. Christians all over have heard that Paul is being held in prison in the highest court in the world. Has something gone wrong? Has the kingdom of God hit a roadblock? Christians everywhere are scratching their heads. Christians everywhere... Except for Paul, as he sits in that prison, chained to a guard. Paul has a different perspective. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I know what you think things look like. I like how Paul uses the word really. I know what you think things are like. But in reality, the gospel is being advanced. It shows us though though we can be hindered in our circumstances, the gospel can never be hindered. Paul has a perspective that all Christians need to develop. Paul knows Romans 8, verse 28. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, how does Paul know this verse? Well, he wrote it. <laughs> And we too must know it and treasure it. God works together all things for good. <clears throat> Have you ever seen the back of a tapestry? The back of a tapestry looks far different than the front. I mean, if you're looking at the back, you can kind of pick up on what the pattern is. You can see the colors that are used on the, on the other side. You can, but you see threads like all over the place threads illogically going from one spot to another on the back of the canvas that you do not see on the front. You see all kinds of knots and loose ends all tied up and raveled together. On the back side of the tapestry, it reveals all the knots and dead ends. But turn it over and wow. A good artisan can create amazing tapestries. So too God. The world as we see it is really the backside of a tapestry that God is weaving. The side that we see is full of dead ends and knots and seeming wrong turns and illogical connections. But from the heavenly perspective, God sees how he is working out all things for good. Understand this. We must understand this. That God is a God of providence. God is infinite in wisdom and power. And he is able to weave goodness out of human evil and failures. God isn't the author of evil, but he is the grand tapestry weaver of good. And a day will come when we will no longer see this world from the backside of a tapestry. We will come to behold the front side of all the goodness that God has worked out of all the suffering in the world, and we will uh, be enraptured with great joy and delight. No doubt we'll be weeping with joy on that day. Do you remember the climax of the trilogy, uh, The Lord of the Rings, where Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf was actually not dead after all? (laughs) Sam cries, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Listen to this. And he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer that Jesus guarantees us is yes. C.S. Lewis, in his masterful book, The Great Divorce, puts it this way. Son, ye cannot in your present state understand eternity. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. The people of God have always understood this. God works good out of evil. Earlier, Grayson read from Genesis chapter 50, where we saw the end of Joseph's life. Talk about God allowing extreme suffering and hardship into one's life so that a far greater good can be worked out of it. Joseph had been sold by his jealous brothers into slavery in Egypt. Joseph endured trials and hardships. He was even thrown into jail on trumped-up charges. And years later, when a famine was in his, in his uh, brother's homeland, uh, they came to Egypt asking for food. When they realized that they were standing before their brother, whom they had sold into slavery, they come to realize that he had become the, most, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. They feared for their lives. Joseph, though, with love towards his hurtful brothers who had done evil for him, to him, And with this divine perspective told them, he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God used the despicable actions of Joseph's brothers and Joseph's suffering in prison to bring about God's good, redemptive purposes. No doubt Paul had that story on his mind as he sat in prison. But then I think perhaps he has a more recent um, person in mind. Perhaps it was the story of another Jew who was despised by his own people and falsely accused. One who suffered the extreme penalty at the hands of wicked people. One who was put to death by the same Roman government that now had him in chains. And yet this other man demonstrated through the resurrection of the dead that God meant it for good. Christian, if you ever find yourself wallowing in self-pity, wondering where God is, look back to the cross. God allowed evil upon evil, injustice upon injustice to befall his own only begotten son. And with joy, Jesus endured the cross in order to bring about the greater good of salvation for the world. Once again, picture that tapestry. Picture the backside of the tapestry of the entire human history and go and try to find that place on the back of the tapestry where God did his handiwork with the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Do you not think that that one place on that giant canvas would be the one place where the most um, strings and weird colors and, and suffering was, pawn suffering is all balled up? In my mind, as I picture that, I see the suffering of Christ and I see it kind of popping off 10 inches thick as a big blob of confusion. Yet on the other side, there could be nothing more grand or glorious or good. The suffering of a Savior who's come to uh, bring humanity into the family of God. The great suffering of our Savior on one side of the tapestry looks so confusing and illogical where you see the black thread and the red thread and the purple thread and the strings dangling. That's what Christ has done for us. And so, my friends... From that perspective, we get a better sense of Paul's perspective. There's no greater joy for Paul than to see the gospel of Jesus advanced wherever God places him. May that be our perspective too. And through this, through Paul's suffering, we come to see that it was a positive fruit-bearing experience. Look at the fruit that God worked through Paul, precisely because he was in chains. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that, one, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And two, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear Paul points to two wonderful fruits of his imprisonment. First is this imperial guard. They're hearing about Christ. Now, the imperial guard in the Greek is the Greek word praetorium. Um, The praetorium wasn't just your regular run-of-the-mill guards. Uh, They weren't the Barney Fife's of the world, right? These were the emperor's trusted um, highest-ranking guards, there were the elite troops that were stationed in Rome. And Paul was under house arrest, which meant that each and every moment of the day, he was chained. And not just to himself, or he wasn't so much chained to a wall, but he was chained to a praetorium card. Talk about a captive audience. Each day as the shift would end, one guard would unchain himself and hand it to the oncoming guard and that guard would chain himself to Paul. Now, Paul could have despised these guards. Instead, he loved them and he cared for their souls. He spoke to them about Christ and their need for a savior. Let me ask you, who are the people that God has chained you to in your life? Yes, the ones you love, family and friends, the ones that are easy to get along with, but even the difficult people. Maybe an estranged sibling, a difficult boss, a needy friend, an ex-spouse. Who has God changed you to? And what are the circumstances in your life in which you feel imprisoned? Maybe you've got three young kids and... For all your love for them, (laughs) you feel imprisoned by the daily demands of parenting. You think, maybe someday God could use me, but for now, I'm just pressing on in the hope that I can get to tomorrow. Well, perhaps God has you in this difficult stage of life called parenting, not so you can hunker down in survival mode, but so that he can use you to bring the hope of Jesus to others. Are you not most perfectly equipped and stationed to bring the hope of Christ to other young moms? Moms that don't have the same hope that you have in Christ. Moms who struggle in their marriages or struggle with their identity or, or people who, moms who struggle for joy. Perhaps God has you in this chaotic stage so that he may use you to proclaim Christ to others who need him. Some of you, though, maybe you feel imprisoned by a dead-end job, imprisoned by ill health or a failing body. While it might look like prison to you, God has you there so you may advance his gospel. That's one of the fruits. All of these people are in Rome are hearing about Christ while Paul's in prison. We read also that that had an effect upon the other Christians in Rome. They, en- Paul was, they were energized by Paul's advancement of the gospel. They were encouraged to proclaim Christ. Verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, Paul says most of the brothers, not so you can go, well, most of the brothers. No, I mean, he didn't do it that way. He said most of the brothers, you need to know most are doing this. That's a good thing, right? That was Paul's point. So many of the church in Rome were looking to Paul, seeing him advancing the gospel while he was suffering and saying, you know what, I can do this too. Let's be honest. Talking to other people about Christ can be intimidating. We feel uh, unsure and insecure. We lack confidence. We, We worry what others might think of us or say or do. You know, today if you tell someone that you really do believe in Christ, that you've given your life to him, they're going to think you're a wingnut, whack job, crazy person, right? They're going to think you're ignorant or narrow-minded or, or judgmental. And so we fear this. And so we keep our mouths shut. You know, in Paul's day, it wasn't any easier. Paul's day, you could land in jail for saying that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Why? Because that was Emperor Nero's title. He was to be worshipped as Lord and Savior. By seeing Paul's courageous proclamation of the gospel, the church in Rome became confident and were more bold to speak the word without fear. And check this out. The two things that landed Paul in jail, they were exhibiting boldness and confidence. Oh, my friends, that we here at Grace Church would be examples to other Christians so that we may encourage them to be bold and confident, or oh, that we may find our strength in Christ and, and live for him no matter our circumstances. May we spur one, one another on so that Long Island may be awakened to the glory of Jesus Christ not for the priority of Christ and his gospel over our reputations. Once again, Paul's circumstances, this time in verses 15 to 18. While Paul's in chains, Christians in Rome are preaching Christ. That is, they're engaging their friends and co-workers and family members and neighbors and and explaining Christ to them. They're evangelizing their city. Now, you'd think... By the way, so many Christians are reluctant to evangelize that the word evangelism means something like to beat someone over the head with a cinder block. (laughs) But that's not what it means. The word evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion means good news. We translate it in our Bibles with the words gospel, good news. Euangelion, evangelism. Evangelism means to good news people with the good news from heaven. That doesn't sound like a cinder block to the head to me. Paul is delighted that this is what is happening. But he points out that there are two groups. Some are motivated out of love for him, while others out of improper motives. Did you see that? Now, you would think that Paul would applaud the one group and condemn the others. But then you'd be wrong. Paul does what? He rejoices at them both. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, while others do it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Right? These two different groups. uh, They're both doing what? What? Preaching Christ. One of them does it out of the pure motive of love and the other's got all kinds of weird motives. But Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Both Paul's friends and his rivals proclaim Christ, but that's where the similarities end. Paul's friends preach Christ out of Goodwill, the rivals out of envy, Paul's friends out of love, his rivals out of selfishness. His friends do so knowing that Paul has been put in jail for the defense of the gospel. The rivals do it just so they can tick Paul off while he's in prison. Paul's friends preach in truth, the rivals preach in pretense or deception. Now it's important to know, these rivals, they're, they're not non christian these are believers. They, they're proclaiming the message of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the message. If they were false teachers, Paul would have condemned them for being false teachers. They both preach the gospel, but Paul's friends do it from goodwill while the rivals do it from envy and rivalry. What is this about? What's going on? What's going on in Rome? Well, Interestingly, interestingly, Paul doesn't tell us. Paul doesn't care. He doesn't want us to know the names of who those people were so we could talk about them and go, I'm glad I'm not like so-and-so. He doesn't list names. He doesn't recount any ongoing disagreement. He doesn't mock them. He rejoices. We don't know why they were envious. But we do know that Christians can be envious, Right? Even ministers. Minister hears about another minister coming to town, taking over a pulpit, having lots of success. Minister will tell his congregation, oh, I'm so happy he's here. But really, there's envy in his heart. What is it that enables Paul to rejoice? It's Paul's perspective. What is Paul's perspective? Paul cares more for the reputation of Jesus Christ than he does himself. It's not about Paul. That's why Paul doesn't fly off the handle because some people motivated by selfish ambition are now preaching the gospel. Try to picture this scene. One of those Christians in Rome who's preaching out of love comes to visit Paul in jail. And he says, Paul, have you heard? so-and-so and and -and so-and-so have started a house church in so-and-so's church in so-and-so's house. And they're bad-mouthing you. Imagine Paul saying something like this. Well, you know, I'd prefer that our brethren would preach Christ out of love and not out of envy towards me. But I don't hold a grudge against them. I forgive them in Christ. In time, I believe they will see the errors of their ways. Until then, I'm excited to hear about this house church. Can you tell me how I can pray for them? See, Paul is oh so willing to be misunderstood and disliked. If only Christ is loved and proclaimed. Paul is also willing to let others think ill of him so that more would think highly of Christ. Paul is willing to let others beat him down so that Christ may be lifted up. You see the gospel cannot be hindered by our chains, and neither can it be hindered by our impure motives. <laughs> The word gets out. That being said, it would be good to shift our gears to what would be a proper motive for sharing the gospel. What is the proper motivation? What is the motivation that gives us confidence to proclaim Christ no matter our circumstances? The motivation that that even allows us to proclaim Christ uh, even if our reputation takes a hit. Beginning of verse 16 points us to our answer. The latter do it, out of love. Love is to be our motivation. Remember how Paul ended the passage last week? Remember what he prayed for? He prayed for the church in Philippi. That, their love may ab- that, that love may abound more and more in their lives. This is an area where we all need to grow. What do we need to grow in love for? For our Savior. We need to grow in love for God. God is a God on mission. God cares about people living here on the East End who do not know him and do not have the hope that we have in Christ. God's heart burns for the East End of Long Island. We need to love that God and love the people that he loves more than we love ourselves or our own comfort. The more we love God and the more we love our neighbors, the more we will, pro- we will proclaim the good news to them, even if it means we are misunderstood or disliked. It will not matter to us what our reputation is, so long as the reputation of Christ is exemplified. It's the love of God towards sinners that made him move towards us in Christ. It is the love of Christ for you and me that caused Christ to joyfully go to the cross so that he may redeem us and bring us to God. The Christians in Rome were under great threat to life and limb. They evangelized their neighbors because they loved Christ and they loved their neighbors more than they loved themselves and their own reputations. They wanted their neighbors to hear the good news concerning Christ. They loved him enough to be willing to be ridiculed and perhaps even be thrown in jail. Grace Church, do we love our neighbors more than we love ourselves? Are we willing that others would think us narrow-minded so that one day some of them might find Christ to be their ultimate source of joy? Are we willing to risk others rolling their eyes at us behind our back or making fun of us at the office party? Or are we more concerned with our own reputations than the reputations of the Son of God who gives us eternal life? I told you this, it'd be challenging. <laughs> it's challenging for me too. So here's the challenge that we face as I see it we need to grow in two areas. We need to grow in our love, our love for God, our love for our neighbors. And we need to grow in our abilities, our abilities, our skills, to to be competent and confident at sharing the gospel with our neighbors. We often feel ill-equipped, don't we, to talk to somebody about Christ. We're afraid if we open our mouths like weird, crazy, foreign language stuff's going to come flying out. We're going to say something really stupid, you know? Or is that just me? All right. Most of us really do love our neighbors and we want to reach them, but we just don't know how. With this in mind, I've got a big announcement. On Wednesday, November 9th, Grace Presbyterian Church is going to put our money where our mouth is, figuratively, that is. On Wednesday, November 9th, we begin a five-week evangelism workshop a workshop where you'll learn to grow in in love for neighbor, grow in our abilities to speak to them and talk to them about Christ. I'm asking each and every one of you who calls Grace Church home to do whatever it takes to be there. If you got kids, get a sitter. Guess what? We will reimburse you. Got a favorite TV show on Wednesday nights? DVR it, all right? We won't buy you one, but get one. But perhaps, maybe fast, from that show, I think you could do it for five weeks. Do whatever it takes to be here Wednesday, November 9th. I'm working on the curriculum as we speak. This next week I'm going to be in St. Louis working some more on it. I believe that you're going to develop a love for God and what he's doing on the East End. You're going to learn practical skills that will give you confidence to speak the word without fear, at least not too much fear. I think it's going to be wonderful. I think it will challenge us all. It will transform us as a church so that we can better live out our calling. What do you think? Well, examples can be powerful motivators. So I want to end with a story of a follower of Christ who willingly entered into and endured suffering so that Christ may be proclaimed. He's one of the great missionaries of our modern church. His name uh, was, is John Patton, uh, spelled P-A-T-O-N. If you wanna, I encourage you, look him up online, read his story. He's a Presbyterian (laughs) from Scotland, (laughs) Scotland, um, and he who lived from 1824 to 1907. He was a missionary to a chain of islands in the Pacific, about halfway between Hawaii and Australia. Today, the islands are called Vanuatu, um, but they used to be called the New Hebrides, the New Hebrides. He wasn't the first missionary to arrive in the New Hebrides. The first two missionaries were John Williams and James Harris. Within a few minutes of landing on shore, they were clubbed to death, cooked and eaten, as were many other missionaries who landed in New Hebrides. The islands were full of cannibals. But John Patton heard a call from Christ to bring the gospel to the New Hebrides. Nineteen years after Williams and Harris were killed, John Patton stood before a mission board seeking approval to go there. And at that meeting, a Mr. Dixon exploded saying, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. (laughs) To this, Mr. Patton responded, (laughs) check this out. Here's what he really said, it's crazy. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave they're to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. <laughs> and in that great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Wow, talk about love for Christ and for those who have not Christ. May God's love for us and our love for Christ and his kingdom fill us with joy at the prospect of suffering for Christ and his kingdom. May we no longer look for exemptions, but rather maybe look for the grace we need to serve with joy. Let's pray. Father, we hear stories like these and we think, how can we become like that? (laughs) It's only by your grace. We thank you for the stories of those who've gone before, who have been enriched by your gospel, people who love so well that They don't worry about their own reputation. People who have such a perspective that can see you working behind all the details, even their suffering, working it for good, for the advancement of the gospel. Help us to, by your spirit, to grow in joy in this area, we pray. Amen.